Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, I'm Zivi Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This 30-minute podcast features a new author interviewed by me every single day, 365 days a year for about 30 minutes. I am also the publisher for Zibby Books, which publishes 12 books a year in fiction and memoir. Our books are already out now. You can check it out on zibbybooks.com. And we have a magazine called Zibby Mag, where we have lots of wonderful essays and lifestyle features. That's at zibbymag.com. We have classes at zibbyclasses.com. And I recently opened a bookstore in LA called Zibby's Bookshop at 1113 Montana Avenue at 11th Street in Santa Monica. I hope that you are able to enjoy some of our other offerings. But this here podcast is the basis of all of it and started in 2018. And no matter what I do, this is basically my favorite thing. Enjoy. Stephen Raleigh is the author of The Celebrants, since I interviewed him, it hit the New York Times bestseller list and was a read with Jenna Pick. So excited for him. Oh my gosh. Stephen was on my podcast for the editor, which I also loved. And then he had the gunkle. Julie Chavez is the guest host for this episode. And she is the author of Everyone But Myself, which comes out next year from Zippy Books. And she hosts Ask a Librarian. 
Stephen Raleigh is the New York Times bestselling author also of Lily and the Octopus, which was a Washington Post notable book of 2016. The editor, named by NPR as one of the best books of 2019, The Gunkle, which was a Goodreads Choice Awards finalist for 2021 Novelist of the Year, and winner of the 22nd Thurber Prize for American Humor. His fiction has been published in 20 languages. All of his books are in development for future film or television adaptation. That's really impressive. Originally from Portland, Maine, he is a graduate of Emerson College and currently resides in Palm Springs with his husband, the writer Byron Lane, and two rescue dogs. Byron Lane has recently been a guest on this podcast as well. Mr. Stephen Rowley, I am so happy that you're here with me today. Welcome to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited that I got to be the one to interview you. <laughs> I have been looking forward to this for months, and I am a school librarian, and I actually saved your books specifically for after school was out because I was like, I don't want this to be ruined by children interrupting me and bothering me. And I have to say it was worth the wait. Oh, uh, well, I love that for two reasons. One, uh, first of all, I want a picture behind the scenes at the Zippy Empire that people are arguing over me. <laughs> you know, don't, don't, don't deflate my ego. No, that I will not. The case. But two, you know, I'm so grateful to librarians, you know, in particular. I'm able to do what I do today in part because I had parents who insisted I have a public library card and a, a children's librarian uh, who took an interest in me. And again, grateful for school librarians. Now, now more than ever, you know, we don't need to get too deep into it, but it's such a dangerous moment with the defunding of libraries and, and banning of books again. And librarians are on the front lines. And I just want to say, authors have your backs. We love you and grateful for all that you do. That means so much. And I love hearing that from anyone and everyone because it's so true, and especially our public librarians. I'm lucky to be in a school district in my position, but, you know, yeah, they are on the front lines. And so I'm so grateful. And I love hearing about people that have an experience with a children's librarian, because there is something so special about someone else seeing you and taking an interest in what you're interested in. That's just so it's magical. And so I love when people still have that. Yay. I mean, it really is incredible. I'm coming to you today from my home state of Maine, where I'm on book tour currently for the celebrants. And so I'll be speaking at my public library this week, which I'm very excited. It feels like a homecoming. And I, you know, always wanted to be an author, I think. But it did seem like growing up in a rural state when I did long before social media and the ways and podcasts and the way we have to connect with authors and readers now, that it seemed like maybe it wasn't a job that was available for me, that maybe it was something, you know, you could do if you grew up in Manhattan or if you had a society name of some kind. But then tucked away in Maine was Stephen King. And so I graduated. Yeah, you may. (laughs) Yeah. Others may have too. In fact, you know, I think my parents sometimes think I'm kind of a big deal. And I have to remind them that I'm not even the most famous writer named Stephen from Maine. (laughs) (laughs) Good to keep them humble. Those parents, they really get crazy. But that was, you know, that was great. I graduated right from the children's room right to Stephen King. So I don't know what that says about me, but. I love everything about that. I was just seeing that he has another book coming out. So that's so exciting. I, no, you can all argue over who gets to interview him. I know. I'm just very lucky to be here with right? you. Right? So. <laughs> oh, no. I'm so thrilled. Okay. I want to I loop back around to what you were talking about with libraries and librarians and just especially diverse voices, because in your acknowledgments, you spoke about Sally Kim, your editor, and I mm-hmm. loved reading that. So let's, we'll put a pin in that. But yeah. I wanted to start by just giving people a sense of what the book is about. And 
I have to say, this is a read with Jenna Bookpick. It's a New York Times bestseller. It's already out and everywhere. And it's been listed on so many lists. There are so many things that are just going beautifully for this book and for your career. And I do have to say, it's so well-deserved. Your writing is so joyful. And especially now, I just think it's so necessary. So I'm so thankful to see all of it. So let's start. Will you give just the quick, like what this book is about? Because I'm afraid of giving away too much. Sure. Yeah. And I'm going to do it specifically without giving, without giving away too much. So the celebrants is about a group of college friends from the class of 1995 who right before graduation lose one of their own to suicide. And after attending his funeral and hearing all the incredible things said about him, wonder if he hadn't been alive to hear those things, if he might've made a different choice. And so they make a pact in that moment because they're about to scatter, you know, in all different directions when they graduate to reassemble at a moment's notice to throw each friend their funeral at their lowest point in life so that they can hear how much they're loved and how much they're needed and how necessary they are here. And hopefully that will reignite a passion for for living. I don't think any of them think they'll ever need to use it, but then over the decades, uh, life starts to intervene as it does. And as with all of my books, while it may start with a serious sounding premise, there is a lot of humor and a lot of joy and, and a lot of laughs, hopefully, because mm-hmm. what is it you do when you get together with a group of friends, you know, drink maybe, but then yeah. <laughs> but then laugh, <laughs> yes. hopefully. Yes. And so I hope humor is, is such a big part of this book. And it really is, there's going to be a lot of talk about how artists and writers in particular address the past few years that we have been through. And while I conveniently skip the years 2019 to 2023, because that's my prerogative, you mm-hmm. know, as, as a writer, I don't want to, I'm not ready to go there yet. I do think it is this idea of coming together in celebration and telling the people that you love what they mean to you while they're still here. That's very much a reaction to COVID and to these last few years and when we were isolated and not able to be together in the way that we might have wished. Yeah, that's a beautiful way to put it. Well, I'm so glad that you talked about what the, I mean, for me, what the heart of the book was, right? That we need to tell our people how much we love them and how much they bring to our lives today. And that I think really resonated with me. Can we just jump into the deep end here for a minute? Because I kept I kept reading this book and thinking, I wonder how he feels about death. And I wonder if this did writing this change anything for you? Like what I don't know. Tell me a little bit about how you how you approached it. Yeah. Okay. So let's jump into death in the context of yes. comedy. <laughs> yes. We'll get back around to humor. No, writing. but I do. I do think it's you know it's it's an interesting point, and a lot of my work has touched on grief. Yes. Um, you know, my first novel, Lily and the Octopus, was about the grief over our losing our animals and our you know our loved cats and dogs. You know, the Gunkel, my novel was about you know children who who who'd lost their mom, kind of, mm-hmm. and and that's something. Here, you know, we're touching on on losing a friend and what it means to lose a friend and and it's something that I think is a unique kind of grief because it it does sort of force you to face your own mortality um, in a way if you lose a close contemporary particularly and and at a young age you know as these characters did it's formative you know I did a lot of writing about that character that sixth 
you know, member of this friend group, even though he doesn't appear on any of the pages. I have pages Mm. and pages on him because I had to understand what that loss felt like, who he was, how he was the glue that kept having these friends reunite, you know, year after year after year. He was sort of the driving force behind that. I did lose a close friend from college a few years ago to breast cancer. And it is kind of unmooring. And it's not something that I think there's natural context for, right? If you lose a a parent or a grandparent, you know, like people under, you can say that people kind of can contextualize what that loss is. Mm -hmm. But with friends, we have many friends, you know, some are casual, some are so close. Sometimes they're, they're closer than family even. And so to lose one, you know, it can really set you adrift, particularly in middle age where these characters are, you know, I certainly have friends who are 25 years older. I have friends who are 25 years younger, you know, so there's no, there's no deal with when we might, might lose one. And so I thought it was a really sort of rich and fertile ground from, from which to write. It really is. It made me think a lot about those early losses. I had a friend who died in 1995. And so Mm. reading this and remembering how much that impacted me and and continues to do so too, because you carry it. I think there's something about the marking of time with a yeah. contemporary where yeah. you reach an age and you automatically think about the age they would have been mm-hmm. because you're kind of moving on these now tandem paths. It's yeah. it's so you did such justice to that because I kept feeling their intensity in that loss and the way that kind of carried them forward. So I I do want to, I mean, now that we've touched on death, check, Mm -hmm. then now, (laughs) I mean, that's done, so that's good. But I want to hear about, you are a humor writer. I mean, these are funny books, and that's what I want people to know. And I think people do know that about you by now, especially after The Gunkle, that your books are hilarious. And they're also truly heartfelt humor. Nothing Mm -hmm. about them feels... You know, sometimes you read it and you think, okay, this was going for the cheap laugh or I saw where this was going. But yours are just so honest. What's your what's your process and what how did you find your way into that vein? Is that like your sweet spot, do you think? I it is my sweet spot and or it's certainly I think what readers have come to expect from me. You know, it's hard enough to make somebody laugh out loud on the page. It's also hard to make them cry mm-hmm. on the page and somehow I keep going for both in one. So I must be a glutton for punishment, uh, you know, I'm not sure. But, you know, we said we talked about death. Check. Yeah, check. You know, the flip side of that coin is living and humor, mm-hmm. you know, humor and laughter have always been the tools that have made life joyous and 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 been the way through even in the more difficult moments. So I do think even in writing about grief, that it is impossible to do that without emphasizing laughter. Mm-hmm. But I do take the craft of it very seriously because sometimes you know you can write a scene with one or two too many jokes and it will you know it it will work against what you're trying to mm. you know ac- accomplish emotionally with the scene conversely if you go too long without letting the reader take a breath yes. with a laugh yes you know it can weight the scene too heavily in the other direction too so sometimes it really is a sort of line by line carefully crafting the scene so that you're not working against yourself. And that's something I work very hard to do. I think humor, though, in in novel format, you know, it's very particular art. You're not writing a Tonight Show monologue. It can't Mm -hmm. be topical, right? Because it takes a long time to write a book and then publishing is a long lead 
industry. Yes. You take another year, year and a half after you finish the book before anyone reads it. And then you hope your book has a long shelf life too. Mm-hmm. So you don't want, you want the jokes to be inherent to character and situation. And also, you know, I think those, there are those that say it's really hard to be funny in these politically correct times we're mm. living in. And I don't find that to be true at all. I think there can be kindness and humor. I think if you think it's impossible to be funny now, you might have been mistaking cruelty for humor in the first place. And so, you know, the, the, the humor in this book comes from these characters. And even when they get frustrated with each other, you know, it's there's still an underlying love that's there that hopefully comes across on the page. Yeah, gosh, mistaking humor for cruelty. My goodness, truer words were never spoken, especially right now. That's I think you're exactly right. I have teenagers, so we get to talk about these sorts of things a lot, uh-huh. right? Yeah. Where it's like yeah. a joke at someone's expense is not a joke. They love that sort of mom wisdom. I mean, they just live for it. They're like <laughs> lapping it up all the time. Well, so listen, you can teach. Listen, there are those who deserve to have jokes made at their expense, but you always want to make sure you're punching up. What a good way to put it. Yes, yeah. punching up. Okay. I'm going to write that down for later. They will like that. And then I'm going to say- You know say, what? Let's get them on right now. Are yes. they around right now? Kids! <laughs> Where are you, children? I really, I like hearing about writing humor because I love the idea of being funny on the page. And I think people do, not that it's an intentional miss, but I just don't think they- often know how tough it is to achieve that. And it's very, and it's a terrible return on investment. If there are, you know, writers listening to this right now, and you were thinking about writing a comedic novel, I'm just telling you, go be a stand-up comedian, go do something. <laughs> it's, it's just such a terrible return on your investment, right? Because I come up with a great joke, I'm typing away and I laugh and I think, oh, I can't wait. Then I realize, oh, it could be years before anybody reads it's, this. And yes. oh, by the way, I won't be there unless I'm hiding in the bushes outside your house to see if it gets a laugh or not. I just sort of have to trust that it will. <laughs> it's so true. You're exactly right. You get zero feedback on it. Yeah. 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 I love laughing at my own stuff. And then, yeah, sometimes I'll force my husband to read something and then I kind of awkwardly stand over him, which he yeah. loves. <laughs> so, so was it funny? And he's like, yeah, hilarious, Julie. Good job. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Okay, I have a couple questions. What is the best part? You are married to another writer. Mm-hmm. What is the best part of being married to another writer? Because I am not. My husband's barely a reader. Bless his little heart. But <laughs> <laughs> what's the best part of being married to another writer? Well, I'll tell you what is not the best part first, which is which is when you give them some. That was my next question. Okay, which is all right. We're going to answer this. I have two parts. Okay, you Second can go in reverse. First, yeah, I'll allow it's it. It's giving them a first draft of something and st- and l- trying to listen in to see if they do laugh or to see if they do, you know, if it does get a reaction. You know that <sighs> that is difficult. You know, the best part of it is, I and I, I know other writers who assume that being that my being married to a writer would be a nightmare. Okay, and it's it's not. I mean, we found a way to make it work. Not only am I married to another writer who writes novels and writes very funny novels, we had books come out on the same day this year, which uh, that was something to navigate. But we've been, you know, leaning in and, and having a lot of fun. I will say, you know, I have a great editor. I have a great agent. I have, you know, by the time a book comes out, I've got a publicity team and a marketing team and there's a team. Yes. But, the initial parts of drafting, you know, that first draft particularly, it's a very solitary endeavor, mm-hmm. novel writing. And it is helpful to have someone else a- around who understands it, who understands the process. Um, it's a hard job to turn off when it's dinner time. I may still be in my head working something out, not ready to just chat about my day. And so it, it is helpful to have someone who who knows the process. And we do read each other's work. I think the challenges there is in any relationship is communication, right? So I have to know like what hat to wear that day. Is he giving me something to read as a spouse? You know, in which yep. case I just want to be encouraging and say, keep going. This is great. You've got this. Is it, is he coming to me as another writer? In which case he might like some critical notes and then it's, then it's in how you, how you deliver. So <laughs> It's all about knowing which which hat to wear. But other than that, we're navigating it pretty well. Yeah, I really can see how that would be a gift because you're exactly right. You have an appreciation for what the other person person's rhythm mm-hmm. might be, mm-hmm. right? Where my husband is in sales and he travels. So when he's at Hamilton and I'm at a middle school band concert, it's just really hard <laughs> to reconcile those two. Yeah. So yeah, I could see that being an advantage, but you're exactly right. You have to know what hat you're wearing. That's just true for married life, I think, right? Do you want a solution to this or no? Yeah. yeah. What? So the other thing that people need to know is that you narrated the audiobook for the celebrants, and I loved it. I was so impressed. Tell me about deciding to do that because I don't feel like that's common for novelists. <laughs> Tell me, how deluded are you that you thought that this would be a good idea? You know, this is the second <laughs> audiobook of mine that I've narrated. I had a wonderful actor, Michael Yuri, who narrated my my first two audiobooks. There was something about the Gunkel, the first one that I narrated, where I hadn't there was enough overlap between that character and, and who I am mm-hmm. that I thought, and there was enough of a blatant high school theater kid in me still that, you know, was like wanted to shine. <laughs> so 
you know, I thought I wanted to try it, but when I brought it up, I, the publisher didn't necessarily think it was a good idea. And in fact, I had to audition in order to be able to do it. But once I once I got the go ahead, I was I was boasting to a friend, you know, I was like, I'm, I'm going to narrate my own uh, audiobook. And for the Gunkle, this was in you know late 2020 or so. And I, the friend said, "You're going to put an actor out of work during a pandemic." And I thought, "Oh no, what have I?" What have I done? But sweet Michael Urie is on a TV series with Harrison Ford now. So I think he's fine. I think he's landed on his feet. He's Thank okay. Goodness. Good for mm-hmm. him. Okay. Good. But for me, you know, writing a novel, it's it's yours and yours alone for a very long time. And that mm-hmm. means I hear, you know, my work in a very specific way. When an actor reads it for an audio book, they're not in your head. They They put their own spin on it. And by the way, they should. That is yes. an actor's job to interpret the text. And so, you know, for better or for worse, I think it's, it, you know, it might be interesting for a reader to hear how it sounds in my head or how I intended it to sound. You know, I have limits on my ability as a performer, per se. So maybe it's not 100 percent, but no. it's an inter- interesting recording of, of how it sounded to me as I was writing it. I thought it was fantastic, and I was so impressed because I was shocked that you were narrating it. But as I was listening to it, that's exactly how I felt about it, where... I think as a writer, you put so much into expression. And I know I read a lot of my stuff out loud to myself over again, especially if I'm stuck. And so the idea that that emphasis can come through and exactly what, you know, you get to say exactly what you meant to say and how you meant to say it in those moments. So I really enjoyed it. You did yeah, I will job. say, it's, I don't know that I'll always do it for every book of mine going forward, but but no, it has to. forever changed my process, you know, and I, okay. I want to mention this, you know, moms don't have time to read, but, you know, I don't know how they would ever have time to write, but I know that there are many incredible writers who are moms and you're all heroes. But taking a moment to read the material out loud will forever be part of my process moving forward because it is, I think it's an invaluable uh but you just, you just hear it in, in a different way and it's easier to think how a reader might, hear how a reader might interpret it yeah. uh, as well. Is that something you figured out with doing the gunkle? Was oh, that for sure. something? Okay, yeah, interesting. For sure. Yeah. That's amazing how you learn all of these things along the way, right? I mean, you just yeah. wouldn't know until you do it. And then yeah. you're exactly right. I love there were so many lines I marked in this book. I mean, so many times where I was listening to it and I ran over to my copy to mark it. And <laughs> I just was I was so moved by it. And I'm excited for people to read it so that I can talk to them about the fullness and all the details I loved. But I think one thing that you really did a good job of talking about in this book is the illusion of control. And Mm. I'm sure that was something that stood out to me because I may be kind of a control freak. I'm not going to say for sure because (laughs) I don't, I mean, it's, it's still up in the air for no one. But I just think when you were talking about the idea that things happen, they're not necessarily remarkable, they're unlucky, right? And I think that was just a really, a powerful moment for me where I was thinking about that because I do have, this book made me think about death in in a very wonderful, holistic, hopeful way. And so I think there was a lot of inspiration there. Is that something that, are you a control guy? Do you like control? Um, or are you a fly by the seat of your pants kind of guy? 
Listen, I am, I'm probably somewhere between the two. I'm going to say, look, I'm a novelist and not, you know, I don't write television and that I'm sitting in a room with a bunch of other writers spitballing okay. ideas back and forth. I think that's the control side of me, right? I like to work in a very sort of solitary okay. genre so that every choice is is mine. And again, I, I don't want to undercut. I wrote one of my novels is called The Editor. I, I you know, take that as a sign of the esteem in which I hold oh, sure. editors and nothing can be done alone. But I do sort of like having that authorial control in my work. On the flip side, I think in my life then I balance yeah. that by being a little bit more easy breezy, hopefully. You can get my husband on the podcast <laughs> and ask him <laughs> if he would agree with that. But, you know, life is about balance. And so yeah. I, think, um, I think I'm a little of column A and a little of column B. That's a really good way to put it. I like that. And I do have your husband's book next on my TBR. I'm super excited. I can't wait. Yay. Did you know this plot of the book from the outset? Did you know what it was going to be about the whole time? Like, did you, did you have a sense of the arc before you started or did it come out as you write it? <laughs> as you write it? Uh, Lord have yeah, mercy. no, I had, I had a good sense of, of the, the story that I wanted to tell. Okay. I had a joke in my head that was four funerals and a wedding, kind of. And uh, and these are living funerals, right? There's not been yes. a bus crash. There's not a massive, we're not putting bodies in the ground. These are funerals that are celebrations of life. Yes. But something about that line kind of tickled me. And so that was sort of a driving okay. point to start. As my, you know, how I approach my craft, I am more of a pantser, okay. as we say in the biz, yep. that sort of fly by the seat of the pants, in that I have the concept, I have a strong beginning, I think, and I know I have a good sense of how it's going to end. It's that middle part that I like to leave room for surprise. Because for me, the, you know, I, I think a lot of writers would tell you the hardest part of the job is butt in chair. It is like showing up you know, mm -hmm. at the computer to do the actual writing. And I know many writers who are prolific outliners and that works for them. They know yes. every single thing that's going to happen before they start writing a word and, you know, God bless them. But for me, I'm excited to show up for work if I don't know exactly what's happening that day. Mm. It's more, it makes it more fun for me the and and this the ability to surprise hopefully and so that's sort of how i enjoy working which doesn't mean i don't go off on some very wrong tangents sometimes and have to backtrack and but it's all part of it's all part of discovery yeah i think that that's so good for people to hear right that there's sort of a middle ground because i think we like to categorize ourselves and i think every writer wants the ironclad process. So how do I get to point B? Yeah, well, maybe that ties back to my previous answer, right? It's sort of like controlled chaos. <laughs> a yes. little bit. It's controlled pantsing, yeah. That is a really good way to put it, controlled pantsing. Let's yeah. talk about just real quick, We, like we mentioned in the beginning, I want to tie off this literary thread, mm -hmm. as it were, with your editor. So talking about how she has allowed you space to tell your stories, but also has made you a better writer. What's that? How does your relationship work? with her overall. Yeah. And I want to say too, like, not just the fact that I have an editor, this is the first book of mine where I've employed sensitivity readers only oh. because this is about a group of people, a group yes. of friends. And like okay. the friends that I have in real life, they are a diverse group. You know, mm -hmm. for instance, one of them is a Japanese woman. I would not write a novel where the sole main character was a Japanese woman. It wouldn't be my place to tell that story. But I have to craft a world that's reflective of 
the one that we live in. And so that means including diverse people. But I take, you know, hopefully a great responsibility to do it correctly. Yes. My editor is a huge part of that, that as well. And I think she is excellent. You know, when you're working with the right editor, mm. it's because you have a co- you have a common goal, right? It's the best version of this book in the author's voice. And so that you're working together to make that happen. A bad editor, and not even a bad editor, but if you're paired with the incorrect editor, let's just yes. say that, yes. you know, sometimes you're working against one another. And I think sometimes we've read books that feel a little strained and I wonder what's going on behind the scene. You know, the sad part, because because I do think editors are so incredibly important and invaluable to the process, um, but their work is kind of invisible yes. when they do it really well. And so they're kind of unsung heroes in a way. And there's no way I'd be able to do what I do without my working relationship with my editor, the great Sally Kim. That's fantastic. Would you ever want to be an editor? I, it's not my particular skill set. I just, well, here comes the control freak part, right? <laughs> so, you know, even in reading my husband's work, sometimes I'm like, I, I, it's hard for me not to want to take the pen and start and start rewriting it. Cause I see so much. I was like, I'm inspired by what he does. And then I'm like, oh, I want to run with it now. And I'm like, that's not my place. So I think I would be bad about knowing where my job ends and the authors really need to take over responsibility. So I, you know, I don't know. I I might be too, too fastidious, too fussy (laughs) as an editor, but who knows? Well, I mean, you never know, but good self-awareness, right? Like you don't want to be the person. I'll tell you what I could Definitely not be as a copy editor. They are incredible. The people who go line by line, grammatically, uh, correcting every single detail and the research that they put in to the, I mean, like they're truly incredible. One of my favorite reads of the past couple of years is a book called Confessions of a Comma Queen, written by Mary Mm -hmm. Norris, who is the longtime copy editor at The New Yorker. And it is part autobiography, part grammar, instructional manual. It's very funny. It's not at all dry like you think it might be. And uh, for word nerds and book nerds, like it's such a great read. I will be picking that up as well. I will be getting Big Gay Wedding and also (laughs) Confessions of a Comma Queen. That's very exciting. I love it. I'm an Oxford comma person. So yeah, like I so have a t-shirt for it yeah. and everything. Oh, so, great. So great. yeah. Those oh, this book is right up your alley then. Yeah. I can't wait. As soon as you said, it, I was like, mm-hmm, yeah. and check. One more question for you. So tell me, obviously you've had such tremendous success, especially with your last couple of books. There's a lot of publicity and excitement. And as I said, it's so well-deserved and I love seeing it. What does writing mean to you separate of all that? What is writing for you? You know, writing is joy and it is discovery and it is learning. And so I did not publish my first novel until I was 45 years old. I was always one who was jealous of someone who came out of the Iowa Writers Workshop at 25 and made a headline-making deal. I think what I love so much about writing is that you're never done learning how to do it. You're never done learning things to write about. And publishing is one of the rare industries, I think, that values life experience and the wisdom that comes with age. I think of two of the biggest success stories in publishing in the past 10 years. Um, let's say Lessons in Chemistry by Bonnie Garmus in the past yes. year and and Where the Crawdads Sing by Delia Owens, right? 
these revolutionized publishing. A debut uh, writer in her 60s, a debut novelist in her 70s. Mm. And I really think that's incredible. I think that's incredible. And it's uh, inspiring to me. And so I know I struggled for years. I have novels that sit in a drawer that I had to write in order to learn how to write. But I think there were years where it felt like I was the last person who didn't give up on myself. Mm. And that's what I sort of love about writing. It's something you can do for yourself. Even, you know, if you're not published, even if you're not the Today Show book club pick, even if you're not a New York Times bestseller. But if you believe in yourself and you stick to it and you keep being open to learning about craft, you know, with hard work and time, you can you can get there. Yeah, that's a beautiful sentiment. And you know who has a great book on that very craft is... Is Stephen, Stephen King. King. Yes. Oh, I'm so happy. <laughs> and we brought it all back around. Well... Look at us. I know. I mean... Incredible. Do we get some pair. sort of award now? Yes. Yeah. Uh, I'm waiting. Maybe they'll be yeah. engraving the trophy real quick. Yeah, they're probably outside engraving probably. the Probably. Right it's true. Thank you for these minutes. Thank you for this time. Thank you for being a writer. Your Aww. books bring me personally, and I know I speak for so many people, but they just bring so much joy and thought and love into the world. And I'm so, so honored that I got to talk to you about it today. Yay. Thank you for this conversation. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.